Welcome. Uh, we've been in a series on Jonah this month. There's four chapters. Uh, there's four scenes in the book. And uh, this is our last week, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, so thanks for joining us. If, uh, if, if you want to catch up, you're welcome to. Uh, our, our website, the, the church's overall website is ccpca.org, but then we have our own just for us, tcpcdowntown.org, and that's where you find this stuff. So uh, I want to take uh, just a quick moment of personal privilege tonight. Um, my grandma's here tonight, and uh, I'm just really, just really glad to be, you're here, Grandma. Love you. Let's pray together. Father, we need your spirit tonight, and uh, Lord, would you, would you change us? Uh, Lord, it's not... Uh, by my eloquence, nor is it by, certainly not by my holiness, that anything actually happens. Uh, but it's by your Spirit. And so we ask that you would uh, take your word and um, apply it to our lives and make us new people. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week, I told a story uh, about Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton uh, is a professional baseball player. Now, he's about my age now, but when he was coming out of high school, he's a blue chip prospect. He ended up being the very first player taken in the draft. There were high hopes for Josh Hamilton in his career. Uh, he had one really successful minor league season, and then he got in a car wreck, and he was out of baseball for four years. And when he was out of baseball for four years, it wasn't because of the car wreck. It was because he uh, got into a drug addiction. And when he got into the drug addiction, it got really bad. He went to rehab a bunch. He failed a bunch of drug tests. And it looked like uh, this blue chip prospect wouldn't turn out to be anything. But wonder of wonders, uh, he cleaned up and uh, had, had about eight seasons of, of hitting superstar. He was MVP of the American League, went to the World Series twice, uh, made, over two, has made over $200 million in his career. By all accounts, his baseball career was successful. But as I told you, he relapsed. And... Uh, He's relapsed, and, and he's out of baseball now. He's separated from his family. His drug addiction has ruined his family life. And there's a, a sports journalist named Brian Curtis who uh, wrote a piece on him after, all this is, all, after his relapse had taken place. And it's fascinating. And, um, and why he thinks Hamilton is really, why he can't shake his demons of addiction. And in the piece, Curtis, Brian Curtis outlines Hamilton's faith story. See, what I didn't tell you is that uh, Hamilton told his story hundreds of times to tens of thousands of people, and he attributed his success in baseball and his victory over drugs uh, to his conversion to the Christian faith. And Curtis tells this, and in fact, he, he says that at one point, uh, Hamilton told him that he told his story so many times that he got pneumonia. <laughs> he was doing it in the offseason so frequently. And then Curtis comments on his vigorous speaking schedule when he says, the problem with Hamilton's story wasn't that he was telling it too much. The problem with the story was that it was too perfect. Its happy ending had left no room for a fourth act. He's trapped in a tale too flawless for any man. You see, the fourth act, you know, the first act was he was a blue chip prospect. Second act, he got addicted to drugs. Third act, he got victory over drugs. Now what? Isn't this Jonah's story? <laughs> Jonah had all the promise of being a prophet. He rebelled from God. He, he, he overcame his rebellion by being spit up on the shore and he preached to Nineveh and revival happened. Now what? That's his story. 
And when I had tried to find something that's going on with Hamilton, because the last, really, anything personal we have about him is that in 2015 when this was his last relapse, I couldn't find anything over the last two years. All I could find on him were injury reports, how he tries to get back into baseball and he gets injured. So we don't know how the story's going to end. To me, there's a real suspense about it. But isn't that true for us too? Don't we try to retell our story either without pain and failure altogether, or at least we can find all our pain and all our failure to our pre-conversion experience? When we experience pain and failure after our conversion, things get real messy. It's embarrassing. And that's why when we retell our stories, we try to tell it something real neat and real tidy, just like Josh Hamilton. But then we become like Josh Hamilton, and we're trapped in a tale that's too flawless for any of us. Isn't this Jonah? His story would be so perfect if we get to chapter 4, and what we read about is that he embraced a lifetime of ministry in Nineveh. He decided to be the pastor to the Ninevites the rest of his days. If he did, then he could tell this grand tale of how he ran from Nineveh. He got swallowed by a fish. He was spit up on the shore. He preached and revival happened in Nineveh. And then he died as pastor emeritus at First Presbyterian Church Nineveh. But that's not what happens. That's what what we're going to see in Jonah chapter 4. So let's read it together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Let me stop there real quick. What displeased him was uh, the, the, the revival of Nineveh. That's, what we, that's where we ended at the end of chapter 3. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, "Do Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that, a, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The word of the Lord. There's a pretty simple layout to this text tonight. Uh, We're going to see Jonah's heart in verses 1 to 5, and God's heart in verses 6 to 11. So Jonah's heart. You you read this, and, and it stops you dead in your tracks, doesn't it? 
Um, he preaches with such great success in chapter 3, so how can his heart be so clouded with darkness now in chapter 4? But this is Jonah, right? Uh, this is the guy who, who, who ran from his call to Nineveh and went to Tarshish. This is the one who in chapter 2 uh, had a very self-centered repentance. He used the first person pronoun 17 times in his prayer. This is the same guy who, in his preaching, though very effective, was really lacking in gracious content. So it shouldn't be surprising to us to see our main character yet again in chapter 4 as an angry racist. He's angry. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, he's exceedingly displeased and he was angry, angered. Well, another way to say that is that Jonah was really, 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 really angry. Even though Jonah talked this big game in chapter 2 about how he repented, even though his preaching was really good in chapter 3, what happened in Nineveh is what he suspected would happen. That God was actually gracious. But what Jonah wanted is what Jonah, he wanted to see Sodom and Gomorrah happen. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities that in Genesis chapter 19 uh, were destroyed. Uh, fire and, and sulfur came down and burnt up those cities as God's judgment for their wickedness. But Jonah forgot in a really important detail when he wanted Sodom and Gomorrah. He forgot that it's God's the one who makes a decision on where to show judgment and where to show mercy. And, and, and man, Jonah's angry about it. He quarrels with God. And when he quarrels with God, he finds himself in a position that many biblical characters do. Moses quarreled with God. Job quarreled with God. Jacob wrestled with God. Jeremiah fought with God. Peter fought with Jesus. And now Jonah is fighting with God. And he's fighting with God because he's offended by God's grace towards the Ninevites. His idea of what God ought to do and what God in fact does are radically different. And this leaves him exceedingly angry. So angry that the narrator in 10 verses used the word anger six times. Isn't that what anger does when it gets the best of us? It consumes us. Just like it did Jonah. Anger is not something that we can kind of push into one corner of our life and say, this is the angry part of my life. I can keep my anger sectioned off right here in my soul. That's not what anger does. Anger erupts. And erupts as a signal that something's wrong. Something's not going right. We sense that there's some level of stupidity or incompetence or evil. And our anger is like a sixth sense that we learn to trust. Because our anger is usually right. Something really is off. Something is stupid. Something is incompetent. Something is evil. So even though we trust it and even though it's right, it's unreliable. Because what anger fails to do is locate that evil, that stupidity, that incompetence outside of us or inside of us. And we usually begin by assuming that it's something on the outside. Something could be our spouse, our child, our employer, our roommate, or like Jonah, our God. But you can track your anger a little more carefully. And if you do, what you'll find is that wrong is usually inside of us. See, we see the wrong in Jonah, don't we? His problem was not with God. His problem was in his understanding of God. He had really good theology. You read verse 2, and you're like, man, he nailed it there at the end of verse 2. Right? 
I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He, had his, he, he, he knew his P's and his Q's. Jenna did in his theology. But it's all nullified with his anger. And it's all nullified with his racism. You see his racism, verse 5. Jonah went out to the city. He sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, in the shade till he, so he could see what would become of the city. And let me tell you, Jonah did not go out there for his morning devotion. Jonah did not go out there for a suntan. Jonah went out there for a fireworks show. He went out there to see God blow this place up. He was hoping that his impassioned prayer earlier in the chapter would lead to Nineveh's demise. But his racism remained. He still thought that all those marvelous attributes that he said in verse 2 were for him and his people. But his imagination was stunted. He couldn't imagine that Nineveh could undergo a revival. So it's the grace of God that's offensive to him. So what he's really saying to God is, hey, you're supposed to forgive us, your chosen people. You're supposed to forgive us at the drop of a sackcloth, not the Ninevites. He's saying, you're supposed to be hair, a hair-trigger compassionate towards us, your people, not them. And I've got to admit, I'm a lot like Jonah. I see a lot of Jonah in me. See, Jonah was actively, through his prayers and his preaching, seeking judgment for his enemies. I'm not so active in seeing judgment for my neighbors, especially my neighbors who are different from me. But what I see in me is a passivity. What I see in me is a neglect, especially towards those who are different from me. And what I'm essentially saying is they don't have anything to offer me, so I'm going to ignore them. Their difference causes fear to well up in me. And instead of questioning the origin of my fear, I'm not going to commit to a relationship with them. This week, Jen and I got away for a couple nights. We went to uh, this lake house on Lake Harrington. And um, we, they, they didn't have a way to kind of set up your Netflix on the TV. And we didn't bring any movies with us. And so we were confined to just the movies that were there. And they had a bunch of musicals. And uh, I wasn't up for a musical. Then they had one other movie, Dances with Wolves. Uh, Dances with Wolves uh, was a big movie. 1990 won the Academy Award. Uh, but it, Kevin Costner is the lead character. And the movie's whole plot is about how Americans dealt with Indians. See, the Americans were afraid of the Indians, so they chose to kill them instead of learn about them. The Indians were afraid, and rightfully so, that the white man would slaughter them. So what they do? They fought back. And it's easy, it was really easy at the end of that movie to sit there and say, oh gosh, that was back then. We've progressed so much since those days in our nation's history. But have we really? Racism, as we see with Jonah, is an age-old problem. This isn't just something that happened when America started. Racism is something that happened when the fall happened. Racism is is when the fall happened, is when we began to prefer people who looked, acted, talked, and thought like us over people who didn't act, think, and talk like us. And it's really easy for us, as in the dominant culture, to ignore that racism exists. 
It's not so easy to ignore if you're not a part of the dominant culture. See, our country is 64% white. Our state is 86% white. Our, state, our city, Lexington, is 76% white. We would better understand racism if we weren't a part of the dominant culture. It's kind of like riding your bike on the street. I've been doing this lately. Uh, not to be a hipster um, as much as just to get my blood pumping in the morning. Um, and I had no idea how scary it is to ride your bike on the street. It's terrifying. You almost hit, get hit every time you drive your bike. I almost fall off every time I ride my bike. Because the roads, they're not built for bikes, they're built for cars. And cars are bigger, stronger, faster, and more numerous than bikes. And I realized real quick what it would be like to be a minority in our city when I've ridden a bike. Because our society wasn't built for non-whites. It wasn't built by non-whites. It was built by whites. And we're bigger, we're stronger, we're faster, and we're more numerous because we're the ones who built a society. And we participate in this system and we have these own racist streaks in our hearts. And if we can repent and begin to live our lives differently, then maybe something could be different. Maybe we wouldn't be actively angry towards those who are different than us. Maybe we wouldn't passively neglect those who are different from us. If we see that God's kingdom is bigger than just the dominant culture. See, this picture of Jonah and this picture of us, it's not flattering in verses 1 to 5. There's anger, there's racism. But Jonah's not the hero of this story, and you're not the hero of your story. God is. And that's why we get to see his heart in verses 6 to 11. And there's a lot going on in verses 6 to 11. But I think what I really want to zone in on is God's heart for the people who are inside the church. People are on the inside by looking at Jonah, how God treats Jonah. And then I want to see what God's heart's like for the people on the outside, for unbelievers, by looking at how God deals with Nineveh. For those who are in, on the inside, by looking at Jonah, and look at this is looking at us, we've got God again. He's in dogged pursuit. He's after Jonah. He appoints three things in, this, in, in chapter 4. He appoints a plant, then he appoints a worm, and then he appoints a scorching wind at the end. Well, this word appoint is used at two other points in, in, our in, in Jonah. Uh, we see that God appointed a storm and God appointed a fish. And when he appoints this plant, uh, Jonah really needed it. It was hot. Uh, he's, he's in the middle of Iraq. It's 110 degree weather there in the desert. And you would think Jonah would say, my gosh, thank you, Lord, for providing for this for me, even though I'm just sitting here pouting. Have mercy on me. That's not what Jonah does. Then the next day, God sends a worm to eat the plant. And you would think that after this moment would happen, Jonah would say, All right, Lord, you've got me. I'm laying aside my racist ways for your ways. But alas, Jonah doesn't. Then God sends this scorching wind. I found out that these scorching winds are called samums. And samums, they blow all throughout the Middle East. And when they, they blow, they're, they're, uh, um, the heat of those winds gets up to 129 degrees. They're called poison winds. And that, because they cause, they, they cause uh, 
you to have heat strokes. And that's why it says that in verse 8 that Jonah grew faint. And you would think that verse 9, after, after God appoints this wind, that you'd have Jonah would cry out and say, Lord, I repent for my anger and I repent for my racist ways. Lead me in the way of the everlasting. But Jonah doesn't. Jonah's response in verse 9 says, essentially says, I would rather die than live in a world where God shows favor to Ninevites. So Jonah's hard heart is clear. But so is God's persistence. He stays after Jonah. He stays after Jonah after Tarshish with a storm. He stays after Jonah with the fish instead of Jonah dying. He stays after Jonah with the plant, then the worm, and then the scorching wind. He's not going to leave Jonah alone. He's trying to bug Jonah to bring him to repentance. And God will do the same for you, friend. God will make your life uncomfortable. He's go, he will make it miserable in terms of your circumstances. Not as judgment towards you, but as discipline. He's trying to get your attention so that you might see the folly of your ways and repent. But have you ever thought of your painful, uncomfortable, undesired circumstances in that way? Have you ever thought, wow, maybe what God's trying to do is get me to my knees and repent? One time uh, in college, I worked this Christian camp, and this Christian camp, we were at Campbellsville University, and uh, I was the camp pastor, I was preaching, and um, one day, it was, I think this was maybe a Wednesday, the, uh, the AC in the auditorium went out. Well, the auditorium is where we had worship services, where I was going to preach. And before I got started, uh, an adult came up to me and said, uh, and it was so hot, I mean, just crazy, crazy hot in this auditorium. And he said, tell them, he, he said, hey, preacher, you just tell them this tonight. If you guys think it's hot in here, it's real hot in hell. And I about died laughing all the way back to Lexington. But for Jonah, I think what God's saying is, if you think it's hot and miserable out here in the desert, you should see what I see in your heart. It's way more miserable in there, and I want to deliver you from that. Friends, God, all of God's activity, all of it, is intended to teach us about His grace, especially our painful circumstances. So you see God's heart for those on the inside, for us, and Jonah. But then you see God's heart for those on the outside. There's this little word in verse 10 and verse 11 that's translated pity. The word means to look upon with compassion or to be concerned with. And we usually think of the word pity with negative connotations, don't we? But when we really take an accurate account of who we are, it's a relief that God would have pity on anyone, especially those who are considered on the outside. And the Ninevites, according to Jonah, are on the outside. He sees them as immoral. He sees them as corrupt. He sees them as uninstructed. But in God's eyes, those were all factors that led him to have compassion. This is what drew God's heart to them was their outsider status. See, God was burdened for the outsiders and Jonah wasn't. And this is a question we've got to ask as a church. Are we for insiders or are we for outsiders? And every church answers this question. If a church says that they're for insiders, they're saying we're about being fed spiritually. We're about having a tight-knit community. We're about taking care of our kids. And that's all good stuff. 
But then there's the other kind of church. There's a church that says we're for outsiders. And so what all that they do is they, they, they construct their worship services and that they're aimed at attracting the unchurched. And they're usually really, really, really active in evangelism and a mercy ministry. But what would happen if as a church you picked both? Sure, you'd always be stronger at one than the other. But what if the gospel can bear the weight of feeding those on the inside and converting those on the outside? See, I think our community here downtown, I think the TCPC as a whole, I think that our denomination, we're great at being a church for those on the inside. We attract people who, who, who are curious. They're, they're so sick of the, the, the ethos of the modern evangelical. They're looking for something meaningful, and they find what they're looking for here. We've done a really good job here in our church with our neighborhood groups of having a tight-knit community where people know each other. We've got a slew of kids around here with lots of parents saying, will you please help me take care of these little people? And so what happens is when the preaching or the music or the community or the children's ministry or whatever, when they're not going right, we cry out in contempt just like Jonah. And I think what God's doing is he's saying, I want to have pity on Lexington, that great city, the city of 318,000 people. See, in Christ, there's plenty of grace to go around for those on the inside and those on the outside. There's storehouses of it. But the shortage is in our pity toward those on the outside, just like it is for Jonah. Our story here, we get to the end of the book, verse 11, and we have a question. It's really, really, really abrupt. It's an unresolved scene. It's an unresolved scene with a sunburnt Jonah quarreling with God and God responding with a pointed reprimand. So you've got this tension. It's between Jonah and God, and it's really high. Jonah's angry at God, and God calls Jonah to account. And then it closes with God asking this searching question that's going to require an answer. You, leave, you get to the end, and you're like, well, did Jonah spend the rest of his days avoiding the God he couldn't predict? Did he stay out there and somehow eke out an existence there in the desert waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah to happen? Or did Jonah take up a vocation as pastor of the Ninevites? Well, scholars go back and forth. I mean, I read every commentary I could get my hands on this week to try to figure out what they think. And I think the most convincing thing that I saw is that Jonah actually did understand God's grace. Why I think that? I think it's because Jonah wrote the book. How else would we have this book if Jonah didn't write it? How could anyone tell on oneself in the way that Jonah does unless they've come to a deep understanding of God's grace? Can you imagine laying out your whole story like this for people for thousands and thousands of years to read? Unless you've got this deep security in something else? So it leaves you asking questions about Jonah. But I think it's also used by the narrator, by Jonah, as a literary tool. He's using this being closed with a question to hold our feet to the fire. Where are we going to come down? Are we going to come down on belief? Are we going to stay isolated out on the edge of the city? Or are we going to fight against our anger and our racist ways? If it comes down in disbelief, that's, that's where we're going to end up. We're going to be angry racists. 
But if it comes down in belief, I think what we're going to have is we're going to treasure Jesus. We're going to treasure Jesus because we'll see him as the second and better Jonah. In Hebrews 13, it says that Jesus suffered outside the city. He suffered outside the city in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Well, Jonah went outside the city to condemn it. Well, Jesus went outside the city to save it. Jonah was mad at a God of grace. Jesus rejoiced at the God of grace. Jesus is the one who models a gospel inclusivity. He models grace. He models this fierce love. But he's also the one who enables us. He's also the one who empowers us to live this out in our relationships. So we're going to treasure Jesus on one hand. We're also going to find ourselves a mission. We're going to find ourselves a mission with God. See, Jonah's, his anger, his self-righteousness, his xenophobia, his racism, they left him isolated. He's invited on mission with God, but he chose isolation except for just those few moments where he preached something. And don't we do the same? Don't we choose isolation when our hearts aren't, aren't warmed by the gospel? But what the gospel is going to do is going to prod us out of our isolation. It's going to prod us into relationships with people who at least don't share our spiritual DNA. And who might also differ from us in their political affiliation. Might also differ from us in their ethnic identity. Might also differ from us in their race. Might also differ from us in their socioeconomic status. It forces us into these kind of relationships. And it forces us into these relationships so that we might see redemption happen in us and in them, just like it did for the Ninevites and for Jonah. So church, let's go into the city. Let's go into the city with Jesus. Let's lay our time and our prayers and our money at his feet and ask him to bring redemption to Lexington and to the world. Let's pray together. Father, this is just a not very flattering chapter about Jonah or about us. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't hide in shame, but we'd allow you to cover us in your grace, that we would no longer rationalize our anger, we'd no longer rationalize our fear, we'd no longer rationalize our racist tendencies. And we'd begin to say, I am that person. I'm Jonah. And Lord, we'd find a God rich in mercy and abounding in grace to love us. In Jesus' name, amen.